Hi, everyone. Whoop, almost there. Hi, everyone. What a great, great sense of worship in the room, and thank you. And if you're visiting today, welcome to Portico. Uh, we love God unashamedly, love to sing and worship, and we're glad that you're with us today. I'm going to ask everyone, take your Bibles out, and if you're visiting today, you don't have a Bible. Ushers, if you could help us, just hold your hand up, and our ushers will make sure that you get a copy, that you can use a Bible while we're going through our service today, and we want you to see from God's Word what we're talking about, and then just leave it on the seat uh, later when we're finished. So keep your hands up. We've got the best ushers taking care of you right now. Give a big hand to our ushers. They just work week after week, and they take care of us. Thank you so much to the men and women that do that for us. Hey, take your Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Esther today. We're in a a series called The Story, and we're looking at key narratives in the Old Testament as we're making our way up through God's bigger story, His design, His tapestry of humanity. And we're looking at a lot of the stories that are mostly the low-light reels, you know, the editing room floor story. But today is one of those ones that it's just such a powerful story. I wanted to make sure that we covered it together. And it's a story found in the book of Esther. For those of you that are keeners, you want to get ahead, Esther chapter 4. That's where I'm going to land. But while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit of the background because context makes everything for the story. So history-wise, if we were to chart this out for you, and some of you love history, this is about 500 years now. What we're going to read and study is about 500 years before Christ. So in 500 years' time, Jesus is going to appear, but this is pre-Christ, and this is actually 50 years after Ezra has led most of the Jews. They've been moving back towards resettlement in Jerusalem, Judea, and beginning to rebuild the temple, rebuild their homes. If you're not familiar with the Scripture, God, through a series of punishments, allowed the Israelite nation, the Jewish people, to be dispersed. And in that time, brought them back and was restoring them out back to their land. Well, what we're going to read is the remnant that are still dispersed under a king by the name of King Xerxes. So he's the one in charge. This is the guy that holds all the power. This is his kingdom, his empire, what he says goes. So he makes a decision. Things are going really well. He's proud of his sort of the, the immense nature of his kingdom. And he goes, I'm going to throw a party It'd be like Prime Minister Harper getting up and going, we're going to have six months of party. I don't think anybody would say no, right? Yeah, taxpayers would. But the king, King Xerxes says, I'm going to have a six-month party. At the end of this six months of celebration, so what he was doing is bringing dignitaries and officials in, and they were looking at his land, his kingdom. He's showing off his vast empire. He's going, look what I've done, and, and basically showcasing himself. At the end of the six, the Bible tells us that he decided to throw a very intensive festival for seven days, and there would be excess food, excess drinking, excess indulgence for seven full days. And on the last seventh day of the festival, the king gets this crazy idea. He decides he's going to call his, his wife, Queen Vashti, and have her come in and parade before all these dignitaries. Now, she knew this wasn't a fashion show, and she knew that this room was full of drunk men. Now, how many ladies are in for this moment right here? And so Queen Vashti goes, hey, my dignity and my honor is worth a lot more than this. I'm not coming in. Well, you didn't say no to the king. And so immediately the ripple effect is, what are we going to do? Because Vashti has uh, defied the king. So his advisors immediately, Xerxes is enraged. He deposes his queen. She's no longer queen. And his advisors do this quick huddle because they go, we're in trouble here. Because if the other women find out what Vashti did and there's no punishment, then they're going to uprise against their husbands and they're going to cause the same kind of disruption. So they convince the king, King Xerxes, here's what you need to do. Not only depose her, you need to find a new queen. 
You need to find someone to fill the role. And so that's what they do. They start a beauty pageant. The most beautiful women of the empire are brought in. And that's how Esther becomes queen of Persia. Now the story continues. Because as Esther is queen of, of Persia, there's a villain that we're introduced to, and his name is Haman. Now Haman had risen up through the ranks. Now we don't quite know why, but he had gained the favor of the king, and so much so that whatever he'd asked the king for, the king would say, yeah. And one of the privileges that the king gave to Haman, so Xerxes gave this to Haman, he says, I want you to be so esteemed in my land that when you walk by my officials and the people, they bow down to you. They acknowledge that you have a high, high position in the land. Haman was loving this, man. Who wouldn't like that kind of power, right? So he's kind of strutting his way through the land. Everybody's bowing down. But he goes past the gate, and there's this one individual that refuses to bow down. And he is irritated with this guy. So he notices this happens a couple of times, and he gains more and more fury and frustration because this guy by the name of Mordecai refuses to bow to the king. Here's a connection. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. They're related. Haman is infurious, just infuriated with Haman, he find, or with Mordecai, finds out that he is a Jew. He goes to the king and he connives an evil plan, terrible wicked plan, convinces the king that there's a pending insurrection in his empire. He goes, there's a group of people now, most of us, we think that this is all sort of a monogamous group, but it's not. The empire was built when they would take over other empires and they'd displace the people, bring them together. So you have all this mixture of these different nations. So Haman was able to convince the king, the one particular group of people, the Jewish people, they're going to plan an insurrection. And if you don't deal with this group, he goes, they're going to just create trouble. So the king grants his permission. Here's what Haman asked for. He goes, I want you to seal the orders that on a certain day, anyone in the empire is given permission to kill, annihilate, and destroy the Jews and plunder all of their goods. That meant this one particular group of people were at the risk of all other nations in that one moment. The king liked Haman so much, and he accepted his counsel that he granted the order, sealed it with his ring, and he said, then make it so. Let's get rid of them. If they're that kind of a group, let's get rid of these people. So in this story now, you have this all taking place, and Mordecai finds out about this plot. And he realizes not only is his own life in danger, his entire population is at threat of a complete genocide. They're going to wipe them right out. And it's just going to be one of the worst travesties in history. So Mordecai reaches out to Esther. And knowing that this is her, his cousin, and she's in a position of influence, a position of power, he wants to make sure that they have some kind of inroad here to destroy this evil plan. So that's where we're going to pick this up. And I want you to turn to Esther chapter 4. And I want to read the story, and then we're going to have a look at some of the principles that come out of this. Now, this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the contemporary English version. So it's just slightly different. It's a little more story narrative. And if you're following along, just listen. It's all the same tie-in, but I want to give it to you in a, a different flow. Here's what it says. When Mordecai heard about the letter, he tore his clothes and sore, and he put on sackcloth. Then he covered his head with ashes, and he went through the city crying and weeping. But he could only go as far as the palace gate because no one wearing sackcloth was allowed, to, uh, allowed inside of the palace. In every province where the king's orders were read, the Jews cried and mourned. And they went without eating, and many of them even put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. When Esther's servant girls and her other servants told her what Mordecai was doing, she became very upset. And she sent Mordecai, this is her cousin, she sent him some clothes to wear in place of the sackcloth. But he refused to put them on. So Esther had a servant named Hathak who had been given to her by the king. 
So she called him in and said, find out what's wrong with Mordecai. Why is he acting this way? So Hathak went to Mordecai in the city square in front of the palace gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened. He also told him how much money Haman had promised to give the king's treasury if all the Jews were killed. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the orders for the murder of the Jews and told them that these had been read out in Susa. And he said, show this to Esther and explain what it means. Ask her to go to the king and beg him to have pity on her people, the Jews. So Hathak went back to Esther and he told her what Mordecai had said. And she answered, tell Mordecai, there is a law about going in to see the king. All his officials and all the people know about the law. Here it is. Anyone who goes to see the king without being invited by him will be put to death. The only way that anyone can be saved is for the king to hold out the gold scepter to that person. And it's been 30 days since the king has asked for me to go in. When Mordecai was told what Esther said, he sent back this reply. Don't think that you will escape being killed with the rest of the Jews just because you live in the king's palace. If you don't speak up now, we will somehow get help. But you and your family will be killed. It could be that you were made queen for a time like this. And Esther sent a message to Mordecai, bring together all the Jews in Susa and tell them to go without eating for my sake. Don't eat or drink for three days and nights. My servant girls and I are going to do the same. Then I'll go in to see the king. And even if it means I must die. So Mordecai did everything that Esther told him to do. Now the great part of the story, those of you familiar with this story, the great part of the story is that as a result of the fact that they collaborated together, that they fasted, they prayed, Esther goes in to see the king. And as she appears before the king, he takes his right hand and extends that golden scepter and grants her the wish to speak to him. And she explains about this evil, wicked plot. And when the king realizes how perverse that it was, then he orders the execution of Haman and permissions the Jews to protect themselves in the middle of what could have been one of the worst travesties that mankind would have ever known. And Mordecai, of course, is eventually exalted because of his role in the whole deal. Now, this is a great story. I can't do it justice today. I would encourage you, read the full narrative. It's just filled with all kinds of poetry and rhythm in the language that it's written in. But when I read this, I couldn't help but think, as we're doing the journey, we need to look at what took place here. Because we often read the Bible in this context of history, but we don't pull the principles back into our contemporary world. So this morning, I want to challenge us because here's what I see taking place. When Mordecai and Esther were faced with issues of injustice, they recognized that if they didn't do something, their entire nationality was at risk. That if left to no one else, two people could potentially make a difference in the world. And ultimately, one may garner the favor of a king. Now, I read this, and you read this, and immediately we think, well, you know, that's the queen going in before the king. But I think the principles that are embedded in the story are worthy of our greater reflection. So I'm going to ask you to take out your notes. If you've got the printed notes in the bulletin, we're going to ask you to talk about these with your small group. If you have an iPhone, an iPad, electronic device, if you'll take your notes out, you can follow, uh, look up uversion.com, and you can follow along with the electronic versions. So here's what I want you to put in your notes this morning. A couple of principles that we can take away. Number one, every generation, every generation will face issues of injustice. I mean, though it's a central narrative for the book of Esther, it's a narrative of humanity. It echoes itself down through time. Long before humanity would ever hear the name Hitler, 
Haman made his way onto the world stage. His plan, his plot, his evil, his perversity was as serious as that, which horrifies us when we think back within the generations that we've just recently gone through. We look at how we celebrate our short-term history, and yet within our short-term history are issues of injustice that rival and equal the very kind of perversion that Haman was trying to lay out on the Jewish people. It was ruthless, it was pernicious, and it was just ungodly. And so here we find, it's in your notes, Esther chapter 3, verse 13, Haman had dispatches sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy and kill and annihilate all Jews because one man refused to bow down and he held power to control not only the destiny of one man, he decided to take it out on an entire nation of people. That's how injustice works. But injustice is not just confined to history. Here's the deal. Wherever fallen humanity exists, injustice will raise its ugly head. Think of the global issues. Genocide, massacre, slavery, the Holocaust, racial discrimination, war, and human trafficking. These are issues that are not issues of history. These are issues of present times. Up on the screen for you this morning is a, a picture, an image. It's called the Global Peace Index Map. The darkest green regions represent regions of peace or relative peace. Then the scale goes all the way to the extreme, into the red zones, to see where the unrest in the world is. The first time I looked at some of these, you can go out, you can look at this online. There's an organization with a Global Peace Index and you start to look at where some of the unrest lies within the nations of the world, we forget in our little region of the global, uh, greater Toronto area or our small clusters of our homes or our workplaces, what's taking place in the larger world system, that people all over the world today live with issues of injustice. We see it in our newspapers. We hear about it on the news. We see it on our iPhones and our iPads when we get our little RSS updates, but we don't really own it in the media uh, nature of our hearts because we feel like it's so distant and removed from us. came across a New York Times article that uh, represented that image that we just had there for you. I don't know if you knew this, but they actually went back and factored the last 3,400 years of human history. So they took our entire 3,400 years of human history, calculated world peace, and here's what they discovered. In only 268 years was there peace in the world. And this wasn't in one consecutive block of time. If you take those numbers and you put them together, you realize less than 8% of human history has the markings of world peace in it. Some people will go, yeah, but what about under the Roman Empire? There was a 300-year run. Wasn't it peaceful? But if you actually look at how peace was preserved, it was through the enforcement of the Roman military. It was great if you were a Roman citizen, but if you weren't a Roman citizen, you wouldn't register peace in your world. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, it's in your notes. God speaking to his people, he says this. Why do you make me look at injustice? And why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Nothing escapes the notice of God. He sees it all around our world, and he sees it within the sphere of our influence, that we are people surrounded by people who suffer from injustice, whether we call it by that name or whether we call it out, it's still injustice. There are hate crimes, discrimination, prejudice, homelessness, bullying, inequity, intolerance, the people who are marginalized. All of it 
is part of the system of injustice. And often we just don't see it. The severity of injustice, I want you to catch this. The severity of injustice is not determined by the scale of its impact. It is measured by each individual life that it scars. That's injustice. It's not when it finally becomes a global proportion awareness item, but it's measured by one life that gets scarred. Because one life who suffers from injustice is one life too many. And that's why God calls it out. And he goes, you have to recognize this. And so when I read the book of Esther, I'm not reading into history. I am being reminded by God's Spirit that every generation, my generation, our generation, will face issues of injustice. That takes me to our next principle out of Esther. Write this one down. Wrestling with the issues of injustice. Wrestling with the issues of injustice requires a strategic response. That when injustice raises its ugly head, whether it's a Haman or a Hitler, whether it's a mob action or terrorism, when it raises its ugly head, wrestling with the issue requires a strategic response. So I go back into my story here and I look at Mordecai. Here's Mordecai, the man who refused to bow down only to God. He honored God with all of his life. He knew the only one that I bow to is my Father in heaven. That's who I bow to. Not to one that the king says, I should bow and give my allegiance and devotion to him, only to God. And when Mordecai realizes that Haman didn't only make this personal, he made it vindictive. He was going after his people. What did he do? The Bible says that he tore his clothes. That was a sign, a public sign of distress or great duress. So he tore his clothes, covered himself in ashes, put on sackcloth, sometimes sitting in the ground in the dirt with ashes on him. Why did he do that? He wanted people to realize that there was a serious travesty that was taking place and it needed to be dealt with. But here's how he did it. He stayed within the provision of the civil situation. So we read earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, that he took this whole condition, he walked right up to the palace gates, but he never entered the gates. It was illegal to do that. So he used his civil liberties to bring awareness to a situation of great injustice. He knew that people would notice his condition. He knew that people were going to go, what's going on? Why is this man dressed like this? Why is the one by the gate of the king? But he also knew that this would get the attention of his cousin, who is now queen over the land. So that little dialogue that begins to take place, Esther, not recognizing what was happening, says, give him some clean clothes. Get him cleaned up. The indignity of the situation. He goes, never mind the indignity of my life. It's the injustice that you don't know about. I am going to die, and you're going to die if we don't do something about this. Well, then we go to Esther's story because she begins to wrestle with all of this injustice as well. But she takes it up a level because what, Haman did, or, uh, what Mordecai did is he took it out into the social awareness world where people could understand what was taking place, and he leveraged it appropriately. He called attention to an issue that needed to be addressed. But Esther realized that she was holding a position of prominence and power and could exercise it in a way that could maybe make a difference. And through the counsel of her cousin Mordecai, realizes that even if it meant risking her life, it was worth doing if this will save human lives. Go back to your notes. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. Esther said to Mordecai, I want you to gather together all the Jews that are in Susan, and I want you to fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three nights 
uh, three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king. And here it is. Even though it's against the law, now she wasn't asking anybody else to violate. This was her personal conviction. And if I perish, I perish. See, Esther realized that the only one that could reverse the edict was the king. And the only one who could get access to the king was her. So she puts her life on the line and she goes, Mordecai, if it's going to happen. And she didn't do it rashly. This is really powerful here. Because we see people respond to injustice and all of a sudden they get on a bandwagon and they're out there protesting and rallying. And it's maybe not the best way to go in that particular situation. What did she do? She goes, listen, we're going to pray and we're going to get the heart of God in this thing. And we're going to fast and we're going to mobilize people together so we're one, we're one mind, one spirit. And before God, we're going to seek His favor. And then we're going to take the most appropriate avenue with the minimum amount of risk, but it's my life that's going to be at risk here. And we're going to take the appropriate avenue, and that's exactly what Esther did. She leveraged her options to make a difference for people. But you know what I discover? Most people who are in comfortable situations don't seriously wrestle with the issues of injustice. They don't seriously wrestle through what a strategic response should look like. Because when we see it on the news, our hearts are moved, we're grieved, But when we're face-to-face, here's what I discovered. Most tend to say, I'll either just look the other way and I'll ignore it, or I'll leave it up to the politicians and the leaders. They can figure this one out. Or it doesn't really personally impact me. That's a whole other nation. That's a whole other location. That's a whole other people group. Or that's a whole other situation that I just don't need to get involved in. So we walk away from it. We sort of just kind of wash our hands and go, we're okay. And that tends to be how... Average, ordinary people respond to this. But when I look at Esther's response and I look at Mordecai's response and I look at how they rallied their people together, I realize that every issue of injustice requires that we together wrestle looking for strategic responses that we can bring into play. In your notes, it says in Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, God speaking to his people. He said, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and who are needy in the land. God was basically calling out his people. He goes, you are the empowered ones. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are called out. What are we called out from? We are called out from our brokenness and our sin and our emptiness and our hatred. We are called out from cruelty and indifference and evil. And we have been called into the light and the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, God says, you're the light to the nations of the world. That's who you are. So we're the called out, not called out so that we're no longer just not a part of something. We're called out to be something for someone else. We are called out to be agents of justice and righteousness for others. That we will be the voice where there is no voice for others. God expects us to wrestle with issues of injustice. And friends, the church is powerful. So much so that Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are called out to demonstrate love, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, justice, intervention, and rescue. So how do we do that? Practically, how do we do that? I think I look at Esther and Mordecai, and right away I go, it starts with prayer. It starts with deep, deep prayer and personal wrestling and conviction with what's taking place in our world. It starts with fasting and humility, asking God to reveal appropriate action steps that we can take. Absolutely. But then it calls for mobilizing a response. We have to do something. 
So when I look at the story of Esther, here's what I recognized. There were priests, there were prophets, there were leaders for the church and the religious community, but that's not who they were. Esther was serving in the second highest position in her land. Mordecai had already garnered favor because he had unfoiled an earlier plot of an assassination attempt against the king. They were connected to the civil system of their own society. They were involved in and informing their sphere of influence. They were making deep impacts through their ordinary lives. And I believe that those who are the church of Jesus Christ, all of us together, the called out ones, we are not called into a building. We are called into a world. We are called to be the light and the life of Christ wherever we go, whatever sphere of influence we have that we would never marginalize or minimize the power that we hold. It's not by might and not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. God raises you up. God raises me up to make a difference in our world. Practically, what does this look like? I think many of us should be engaged in all kinds of civil activities in our society. Now, I couldn't say anything during the election period. I've got to be real sensitive. We have laws that govern all of this. So we just went through a season of elections. And one of the things that I watch very carefully, every time we do an election, I watch this very carefully, I watch the engagement level of our citizens. So we've come through an era, and Mayor Hazel is just finishing up a wonderful legacy of as being mayor over this particular city. And we had a number of municipal elections, but over this particular city. And we're celebrating not only her faith, but the leadership that she gave to us. So we champion that. We've had her on our stage, and I love that. Here we are voting a brand new mayor that is going to chart the destiny of our city and will influence the region for us. And as I watched voter turnout, I began to calculate the number of people who showed up to vote. And I realized we only hit about 36 to 38% of registered voter turnout. And I thought, oh dear God, I hope that that was the entire church represented in those numbers. I hope nobody who was a follower of Jesus Christ stayed at home and took for granted the privilege they have to vote leaders into positions of influence. I pray that you would have a holy discontent by the Holy Spirit. Some of you need to be our leaders in politics. And I bless, we have members of our congregation, and you ran, you put your name out there to run for civil positions, and we applaud you for doing that. And many of you should be running for positions of influence and as MPPs or MPs, any level of our society. We should be involved in. The church doesn't hide from our society. We're the powerful ones. We should be leading our society. Now, here's what I do know. If we don't vote, we still love to complain. We do, don't we? Can you believe what they just passed? Unbelievable. What kind of country? Did you vote? No. Did you write a letter? No. Did you do anything? I complained beautiful. We don't need you. What I do need is people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, passionate for God's church, believe that righteousness exalts a nation, and that they are people of righteousness, and they will take leadership roles righteously for God. Amen? Ooh, you were weak on that one. I'm coming for you. Amen? Yeah. That's who we're called to be. That's who we are. So when I look at this, I go, where are the Esthers? Where are the Mordecais? Friends, we can change our cities. We can change our nation if we will recognize that injustice prevails and God uses people willing to step up and lead through. 
There's a way practically to do this, and I so appreciate this gentleman doing this. Uh, Jim, would you stand? I'm going to have you just stand. Would you look back towards Jim, those of you in the main room this morning? Thank you, Jim. You can take a seat. Jim and Juanita are part of our, our church family here. Jim has uh, just been a part not only of our church serving on staff here for some time, but he serves our greater churches in this region. And he does a wonderful job of networking churches and business leaders together so that we're on the same page handling current issues, some of which are issues of injustice. He helps us champion things. For instance, many of you wouldn't realize that in some of the development plans for our cities, no longer are they providing spaces for places of worship. It's not even part of planning. And so he brings these issues to our awareness so that we can continue to get involved. I called Jim and I said, look, if I motivate our church community and some of the people are going, well, how do I get involved? And maybe it's small way. Maybe it's just being an individual who had a list of names and you'll send an email out saying, did you know there's a meeting coming up? Or you'll get on the phone or you'll write a letter or you'll contact pastors in the city or you'll contact business leaders. I said, Jim, would you capture that information for us? And if people want to respond and get practically involved, that we could be the Esthers and the Mordecais and we wouldn't just go home and feel comfortable today, but we'd actually sign up to do something. And when opportunities come, we could get involved together. So Jim's agreed to be at our information center at the back. And if you don't get a chance to see him today, you can see him because he's here regularly. Just talk to Jim. But I want all of us, and you don't necessarily have to sign up through Jim. We all see issues of injustice. We see it around in our homes. We see it in our workplaces. We see it in our land, and we see it across the seas. Many ways to get involved, many great organizations. I just want our church to be the Esthers and the Mordecais, that we're on the front edge of response. All right, let's go to the next point. Let me wrap this up. So when I go back into this, not only do we have to wrestle with strategic response, but responding to injustice requires individual expressions of courageous faith. That when it comes to issues that gain our awareness, we need to respond with courageous faith. Look at the image on the screen. These are pictures of fighters of injustice. William Wilberforce, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, Mother Teresa. We could fill screens and screens and screens of individuals who are champions for justice in the day in which they lived. They came up against cases that were bigger than themselves, but all of them individually took courageous steps. That's exactly what Esther did. Look in your notes. This is what Mordecai said to her. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther responds in verse 1. It's there in your notes as well. And on the third day, Esther, knowing, fearing for her life, she puts her royal robes on, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance, and she had no idea. She had no idea what the king was going to do. But she was fully decked out, reminding him, I'm your queen. And I'm asking for your favor in this moment. And the beautiful part of that story is the king gives her the grant, gives her the sign, come on in. And she's able to tell him exactly what took place. One woman willing to risk it all to change the fate of a nation. Friends, look at who we are. We are his church. We are powerful. Nothing can stand against his church when we come together, we pray together, we believe together, and we allow the Spirit of God to use us. God calls us to be champions of justice. God has placed you where you are for a purpose. It says in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? God has called you for such a time as this. And you might say, Doug, but you don't understand. What can I do? Well, every one of us has a sphere of influence. I believe this. Every one of us. And whether it's victims of violence, victims of discrimination, victims of bullying, victims of genocide, whatever level it is, it's a ripple effect of injustice, and it's evil wherever we go. But I believe God has called you for such a time as this. And he is calling me and you together. Influence those around us. Use the good. Use the presence of Christ to change the world. And then collectively as a church, let's do something powerful. Now in the next service, we're going to talk a little bit about northern Iraq. We're going to look at what we can do together. But I would be remiss if I simply said, let's do something by giving a little bit away. I want to call you to a much higher level. I want your spirit to just wrestle with God's spirit and to say, what is God calling me to in my world where I live in my ordinary existence? Because he's an extraordinary God and he will change it if I give him my life. So let's pray. God, this morning, that's what we ask of you, that you would never allow us just to live in a state of contentment while injustice prevails throughout our land and around this globe. Call us out to be the Esthers and the Mordecais because who knows? You do, but you've called us for such a time as this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.